live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about updates from beyond the solar system, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe of ours. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about it's time for time. But first, the news. Hello, space cadets. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio where we talk about all things in the universe. Surprisingly short program given the nature of the content. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here in Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at Space Radio radioshow.com to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets on our live streams on YouTube and Twitch. Check out spaceradioshow.com for the links and tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to the great cities of Pell City, Alabama, Northern Colorado, just generally vaguely Northern Colorado, Howell, New Jersey, Tucson, Arizona, also Colorado. That's not a name. It's, it's just second person in Colorado. We've got Austin, Texas. We've got Washington, D.C., and we've got Stratford, Canada, tuning in live tonight. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes of show material, and not even that. That's like on a good night. We got 10 minutes of show material, Tops. This show lives on listener questions, so get those questions in. Before I start taking questions, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And man, the Voyager spacecraft have always intrigued me. These things were launched in the late 70s. Their primary mission was to visit the outer worlds of our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And when it comes to Uranus and Neptune, the close-up pictures we have of those planets came from the Voyager missions. We have never had a close-up view of those planets in decades, which kind of gets under my skin, but I'm not in charge of NASA yet. So that's all we're going to get for now. But the Voyager spacecraft have continued their missions. They're still alive. They're still kicking. They're still recording data, and they're still sending that data back to Earth, except now they are over 10 billion miles away from us. That is billion with a B. That is a legitimate Carl Sagan billion right there for you for these two Voyager spacecraft. Voyager 1 crossed into interstellar space about six years ago, and Voyager 2, its twin, just left the solar system last year, and now scientists uh, working with the Voyager spacecraft have had a chance to analyze the data, write up the data, make some pretty figures, write an introduction, get a few papers out. And 
what we're seeing with Voyager 2 is similar but different than what we saw with Voyager 1 when it crossed into interstellar space. And the, the definition of interstellar space we're using here is where the stream of charged particles always coming out of the sun called the solar wind reaches a certain limit where it starts to stop and then mix with just the general interstellar milieu that we find in the galaxy. It's just, it's, it's not really like a hard and fast line. It's just tastes different. Like you just, the air feels different. There, there's a different tone to things, a different energy, if you will. And, this region, the boundary region between our local bubble and interstellar space is called the heliopause or the heliosheath. And Voyager 1 crossed through this region. Voyager 2 more recently has crossed through this region. And what it found was a steady decrease of the solar particles, the solar wind, and a steady increase of the interstellar galactic particles. You know, it was steady, 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 steady for a few weeks. And then, like, overnight, the solar particles pretty much disappeared, and the cosmic rays and the galactic magnetic field just ramped up. So it was very strange. It was like gentle, 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 and then bam, you're outside the solar system, which is very, very interesting. So right now, we only have two spacecraft that have measurements of this interstellar boundary. And they're a little bit different. They're, they're not quite the same. Both have exited the solar system, but they did it in different ways. I guess it's time for more Voyagers, am I right? I think I'm right. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space, but it's time to have a conversation. Today on Space Radio, we do have voicemails, but I've decided to turn it over all questions to the space cadets. So these are the live streamers here on YouTube and Twitch, and I'm letting them take control of this episode. And first up, we've got a question from Nerdy Rodent on YouTube, the smartest rodent I've ever met. Hygieia, is it a small asteroid or a dwarf planet. So Hygieia is the fourth largest asteroid, if I remember right. Uh, Ceres is by far larger. Ceres, by the way, has like half of the mass of the asteroid belt locked up inside of it, and then everyone else has to share the other half. Hygieia is a part of that. Hygieia is in the main asteroid belt, it does have a lot of carbon on its surface, and so it's thought to be the largest of the carbonaceous asteroids, if that means something to you. And it's rather large. It's a few hundred miles across, and it's also very round. Usually when we think of asteroids, they're all knobbly and twisted and, and just ugly and lumpy and, you know, general asteroidy. But Hygieia is pretty round. It's big enough to make itself round. And so you got to wonder, here we go with planet definitions. Is Hygieia going to be an asteroid or is it going to be a planet because, or a dwarf planet? Because Ceres is in the asteroid belt and yet it is classified as a dwarf planet, the exact same classification that Pluto has. 
Well, according to the current International Astronomical Union definition that we've had since 2006, and I need to add the caveat that not everybody agrees with it, but that's the definition we're going with for now. In order to be a planet, you need three criteria. One, you need to orbit the sun. Hygieia orbits the sun. Number two, you need to be big enough to make yourself round. IG is big enough to make yourself round. Number three, you have to clear your orbit of debris. And this is where Hygieia fails hard. It just doesn't. Now, neither does Ceres. Ceres is not a planet because it doesn't clear its orbit. Pluto is not a planet because it doesn't clear its orbit. Instead, they are dwarf planet, large, roundy things in general. But this is the problem with trying to classify these objects in the solar system. Because, okay, we resolved if the planet versus dwarf planet question. But now what's the difference between a dwarf planet and an asteroid? Does Hygieia count? Nerdy Ronan is asking my opinion. My opinion is, I don't know, it looks like an asteroid. It looks boring to me. That's basically my definition of a planet, is if you are interesting looking, you get to be a planet. And if you're boring looking according to some nebulous definition that I make up on the spot, according to my own sense of aesthetics, then you get to be a planet. And Hygieia, I'm sorry. I understand you have a lot of carbon. You probably have some iron deep inside of you. I'm sure you have a great personality, but I, I'm not going to call you a dwarf planet. You just get to be an asteroid. Sorry about that. And following up with the space cadets, we've got Red River asking, oh, sorry, Astro B saying even Jupiter has not cleared its orbit because there are these things called the Trojan asteroids, where there's a group of asteroids leading and following Jupiter in its orbit. Now, this is the thing with all definitions. No orbit is truly cleared. There, as Astro B pointed out, there are objects in say the orbit of Jupiter and um, if anyone in the solar system is going to be a planet it's going to be the largest thing here which is Jupiter. So how can this definition apply to Jupiter if it doesn't even clear its own orbit? Again these definitions are very fuzzy, they're very loose, it's cleared quote unquote enough or substantially its orbit. So this definition is specifically designed to allow Jupiter to be a planet and disallow Pluto to be a planet. Whether you like that or not, whether that's satisfying or not, that is your own personal problem. There are some things I struggle with with that definition. So we, that's, that's just got to be on our own personal journeys. I'll get to some more Space Cadet questions after the break, but we do need a little break. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. That's right. Go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter, as in Paul Matt Sutter. And that is how you can keep this show going for as little as $1 a month. Seriously. Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. 
More information about the firm at ThompsonHine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the Space Cadets on the live streams. Check out SpaceRadioShow.com for all the links. Now, Constellation Pegasus. Over on YouTube, one of our space cadets is asking, what's going on with the news story that the universe could be curved and not flat? Whew, giant can of worms. And I might just need to do a whole special episode on what's this so-called crisis in cosmology, where we're trying to measure something called the Hubble constant, which is the rate of expansion of the universe right now, today. How fast is the universe expanding right now? There's a few different ways to get this number. One way is to look at supernova explosions that have a very standard brightness. And so you can measure how far away they are. You can measure how fast they're expanding and you can directly measure this expansion rate assuming you can rely on the supernova data. This is how we originally discovered the accelerated expansion of the universe. It was good enough for that, but now we're talking about very, very, very precise and accurate measurements. And so if you believe that the supernova are, say, clean enough, then you can get a very accurate measure of the expansion rate. Another way to do it is to look at something we call the cosmic microwave background, which is the leftover light from the early universe when the universe was just 380,000 years old, just a cute little baby. And we have absolutely crystal clear, pristine data of the cosmic microwave background. And I'm not just saying that because I spent a few years with the Planck collaboration doing work with the cosmic microwave background and measuring it and studying it. I'm saying it because it's true. (laughs) So you have a very accurate picture of the early universe. It tells you what the early universe was made of. Then you can plug that into a cosmological model that you get from general relativity. You can run the clock forwards and you can predict what the Hubble constant ought to be today. And it turns out that the Planck data or the data from the cosmic microwave background is in disagreement somewhat significantly with the data we're getting from the supernova. So the first response to that is one or both of the data sets are wrong. It's really, really hard for the cosmic microwave background to be wrong because it is just so exquisitely measured and the statistics and the uncertainties and the error bars are very, very well understood. It's just, it's bright, it's glowing, there's tons of data. It's, it's very, very clean. Supernova data, it's very, very messy. When you see a supernova, in order for this whole thing to work, you have to know exactly how bright they're supposed to be. Lots of things can mess up how bright the supernova are supposed to be. Not enough to mess up, say, our measurements of dark energy, but when we're talking about tiny, tiny little disagreements, very, very precisely measured things, there might be enough stuff going on. But if you believe that the supernova data are clean and you believe that the early universe data are clean too, then you've got a problem. Then our model, our picture of the universe isn't fitting together. The 
data that we're getting from the early universe, the picture we're getting from the early universe isn't agreeing with the picture we're getting from the modern day universe. So what's going on? This is where theorists go nuts because there's all sorts of fertile ground here. Maybe dark energy is changing. Maybe there's new particles floating around, etc., etc., etc. Another way and Larry Beckham, I'm not going to say it's aliens. Aliens are not altering the expansion rate of the universe. How dare you even suggest that? <sighs> Another possible way to resolve this, as reported in a recent paper by Eleonora Di Valentino and a couple collaborators, is that, hey... For a long time, we've been measuring that the universe is flat, is geometrically flat, that on the very, very largest of scales, parallel lines stay parallel, triangle, interior angles of triangles add up to 180 degrees. It's all great. Our universe is not curved, plus or minus. They say, hey, maybe with this latest data set is suggesting that the universe is curved. That one way to explain this discrepancy between the early universe and the late universe measurements is to allow the universe to be curved. Now, okay, this is up for debate whether that is a valid interpretation of the data because you know, according to the paper, they started, you know, they started playing with cosmological models and they say, hey, if we relax the idea of a flat universe and we allow it to be closed just a little bit, we can get everything to fit. Mm, but we have other reasons to believe that we live in a flat universe. We have other lines of evidence that point in the direction of a flat universe. So if you're going to say like, oh yeah, the cosmic microwave background is telling us that the universe is a little bit curved, it breaks some other things that we know about the universe and it throws some other things into tension. So it's like you solve one problem by saying that there's a closed universe but then you open up a few other problems. So you just you just kind of shifted the focus of where the tension is. Oh, it's not in the Hubble constant. It's somewhere else. It's now it's in the curvature measurement. So no matter what, there appears to be some sort of tension. My personal guess, my Paul Sutter guess, which following Sutter's law, and if you haven't heard Sutter's law, it's... If it's interesting, it's probably wrong. And, oh, there's all this interesting stuff happening with measurements of the expansion rate of the universe. The first guess is that it's probably wrong. That the universe, that our measurements are a little bit off, that we're not fully understanding supernova, that we're not fully understanding these models. And, like, like I don't, I just don't think... There's new physics here because this quote-unquote crisis first cropped up like five years ago or something. And people have been banging their head against it for five years and nothing new has come out of it except maybe the data are wrong. Maybe we don't understand supernova as well as we thought we did. So that's, that's where I'm going to go with it. I know I'm always a downer. I know I'm always poo-pooing new ideas. I know I'm always throwing shade on on exciting new physics, but you know what? 
the universe has disappointed me one too many times. And sometimes boring can be beautiful. Just have to learn to accept it. Thank you so much for those two questions. I know I went long on these questions from Nerdy Rodent and Constellation Pegasus, but I felt I feel like it was well served because these are very, very fun conversations. Thank you for all those questions. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, but before we go, it's time for the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And this past weekend, I had a great opportunity to work with my friends and collaborators over in Siren Modern Dance here in New York City. They're uh, a modern dance company. And we've been collaborating for over two years on a project exploring the nature of time. It's called TikTok, and you can check it out at sirendance.org slash TikTok. And now it's on tour. We had a benefit. We had a small performance of it here in New York. And in a couple weeks, well, actually, in a week, we're going to be in Houston. And then we're going to be in Boston. We're, we're going to be all over the country showing this piece. And what I really love about it, besides merging science with art, besides getting to hang out with a bunch of very cool dancers and choreographers, is how the performance explores time. Where I come in in the narration is to explore the physics of time. I talk about relativity. I talk about entropy. I talk about the arrow of time. But there's more to this subject than just the physics. You know, physics doesn't have the first or last word on the subject of time. There's so many human components There's things like memory and anticipation and forgetfulness and timekeeping, obsession with being on time and how that's changed over the decades and the centuries and just change in general of of how we're different people than we used to be and how we'll be different in the future. And the dance, the artistic expression, explores these concepts and weaves it in and out with the physics, which is unlike anything I've ever done before. Where I get to talk about science, I get to talk about physics, I get to explore what we know and most importantly what we don't know about the nature of time. We're not shying away from the emotional side of it, the human side of it, the the personal side of it. Because physics doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our understanding of the universe doesn't exist in isolation, where it's just, okay, we just close off all emotion and all bias and just everything, and then we're soulless automata trying to understand the universe, and then we get our results and we bring it back. No, it's woven into our characters. Physicists are obsessed with the concept of time because it's puzzling and strange. And pulling that kind of beauty out, pulling that kind of... human exploration out is incredibly exciting. So if you're going to be in Houston next week, check out our show. I'd love to see you. And if you're going to be in any other cities that we'll be touring to, I hope to see you there too. And unfortunately, speaking of time, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you 
by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrestling the Space Cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the info and the links and the good stuff. You can also follow me on social media. My name is at Paul Matt Sutter. And thanks, of course, for listening. Space Cadets, see you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and transmission. 